0: Well, good morning, everybody. Man, what a great... uh uh, just a great statement of what Saturate is about and what we're going to together over the month of February. We've been praying, preparing for this for uh, a couple months now, and uh, hopefully, uh, so many of you have gotten on board with us. We're about one week into praying uh, and going through our daily devotionals together. And uh, for those of you that have been a part of that already, uh, thank you so much for taking a part. Uh, that is a great tribute to show that you are not alone, that there are people and friends all across our city that are coming together to pray uh, together. And just seek God for that fresh humility and that God would pour out His love and that His justice would roll through our streets. If you're new with us today, either online or in the room, we're really glad uh, that you're here. My name is Dan. Uh, we're going to be going through a passage of Scripture today and starting a series of messages uh, coming out of the book of Luke, Luke chapter 10. And so if you have a copy of God, God's Word, we would love for you to turn to that. Uh, if not, it's okay. I'll uh, have the Scripture up here on the screen and we'll be going through that uh, together. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about saturating, uh, saturating us with your perspective, uh, saturating ourselves with God's perspective. Um, we know when you think about uh, life and when you think about faith, uh, oftentimes, sometimes it's easy to lose the plot uh, in things. I, I don't know if you're like me, but uh, frequently... Uh, I will read a book and I will be, I will read a few chapters, I'm not in a few chapters, I'll read a few paragraphs. Uh, I'll get a few paragraphs in and I will have figured out that my mind has wandered. Uh, anybody else do this? And, and I come back in, I'm like, what did I just read? Uh, I've read this and I've lost the plot. I've got to go back and reread uh, a few uh, few paragraphs or a few sentences or maybe even a few chapters just to try to recapture the essence of the plot line. Uh, I do that in movies sometimes uh, if my mind drifts or or wanders, or if it's a particularly compact, complex plot, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. Sometimes I will lose the plot of the movie. Uh, fortunately, now we can hit that rewind button, you know, and go back and, and see that uh, again and catch back up on the plot. Uh, sometimes with faith, it's like that. Uh, I think sometimes we we get into this posture where it just seems like faith is really complex, uh, and there's reasons we feel that way. There's a lot of different opinions. I mean, you just open the Bible, and there's going to be a lot of different opinions about a lot of the things that are said in there. Uh, you have denominations that have been representative in here, and, and we meet in different churches, and we have different takes on certain different passages uh, on, and on those type of things. And so uh, now you even get online, and uh, you, man, that, that's kind of like an endless sea of opinion when it comes to matters of faith and God and all those type of things. And so sometimes it, it's hard for us to really capture the essence of the plot line of what this whole thing is. about, And over the course of the next four weeks, what we're going to endeavor to do is we're going to endeavor to recapture the plot line, uh, to push past the complexity and to push back uh, past uh, differences uh, and and things that are maybe into the minutia of opinions about things. And we're going to try to get back to the heart of what it means to become a people that are called by Jesus name, to become the people he wants to shape us into. And we're coming into this naturally because the first month that we spent together of 2021 as a church, we were looking at the concept of beginning again, which means as us as individuals that God offers us the opportunity to start where we are, uh, wherever we find ourselves to start right here Uh, and through the gospel, uh, he offers us the opportunity to start right there and to move forward and begin uh, again as individuals. But what we're going to learn together over the next few weeks is that the beginning is not the ending, that the beginning moves us into becoming, and we are praying that over the next four weeks that God will shape us and help us to become what he wants us to become uh, as a people, not just uh, at journey, but that the church of Jonesboro would become what he wants us to become so that the city is able to feel the presence of God, to see the humility that comes with that and to experience wrongs being made right and to see the city changed in Jesus' name. And so as we do that, we're going to be looking at a series of passages in Luke chapter 10, and we're going to do something interesting because we're going to start at the end of Luke chapter 10 today, and then we're going to drop back to the beginning, and we're going to bookend uh, this series by seeing where we're going to end up uh, today at the end of Luke chapter 10, because I believe what it does is it gets us to the heart of the plot line. It takes us back to the center of Jesus's approach uh, that actually becomes our approach to life, and he's 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 going to share it in the form of a story, ultimately, that's a really familiar one called the Good Samaritan, Uh, and it's going to point us in several different directions of application today. So we're going to go to school, like we like to say at the beginning. Hopefully, we'll end up at church at the end of it, but I want you to follow along with me, and let's see what the Lord might want to shape us into through this famous story in Luke chapter 10. This is the way the story starts in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" Now, out of the gate, just let me set the backdrop for you. This is uh, in Luke's gospel. if you're new to the Bible, there are four uh, four uh, narratives, if you will. That actually illustrate and narrate the story of Jesus: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke is telling this particular narrative and this different, this specific facet. Uh, And so, the Good Samaritan passage is is really rooted in Luke's approach, and he's uh, shared with us a lot of different things. But this actually within the Gospel of Luke uh, is in a specific section that has actually changed trajectories in Luke chapter nine. In Luke chapter nine, we get this phrase that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And so early on in Luke's gospel, uh, he shifts gears and he takes us on this journey to the cross with Jesus. And along that way, Jesus has all different kinds of encounters. He encounters uh, most readily people on the outside, uh, people that were tax collectors and sinners. And uh, he talks uh, to people that were uh, along the roadside. He talks to uh, kind of the religious elite uh, group of people. Uh, And then he talks to people like we're encountering today this uh, this lawyer, this religious expert, and this particular religious expert was uh, uh, had found his roots in uh, kind of the comings and goings of what it, uh, life was like uh, in the Jewish Uh, in the Jewish faith. Uh, He he was tasked, his life and livelihood was wrapped up in studying scripture uh, and he was the go-to guy. He was one of the go-to guys when it came to the authority on what the Torah said. The law would be the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, It would be what God had given his people to try to begin to direct them on the type of people that they were supposed to be as they reciprocated God's love to them, his covenantal love. And so this would be the type of thing like if you had uh, in modern day kind of conjecture, It'd be like the type of person you go to if you had legal questions, right? Uh, if uh, you know you, you've got a specific legal problem uh, in that arena, you would say, "Well, I don't quite know uh, what to do. I think I know, but I want to see what my rights are, what the legal precedents are, what what paths I need to take." So we go to someone that's a lawyer that could really begin to explicate legal uh, terminology and all those different facets and apply it to my situation. Uh, in the same way that you would do that when legal situations, you might do that with a pastor where you're studying something. And you come across a problem passage or something like that. And you're trusting for spiritual guidance, someone that has spent time and researching or might have the knowledge to research a little further so that you can get some direction. And so the the experts in the law, these lawyers, that's what they were tasked with. They were the the go-to folks. They were the ones that when you had questions, you went to them for answers. And they had a specific role within the Jewish people where they were actually there to protect the law. They were the ones to make sure that we didn't skew to the right or to the left, or uh, that you would actually follow it to the T. So you would understand it, properly apply it, and make sure that no one changed it. And so these type of people, they would frequently engage with Jesus. And the reason for that was that Jesus would often controversially uh, dumbfound them. He would say things that would conflict with their common understanding, and maybe even the advice that they would give. Uh, And so you see this pop up all the time with Jesus that these lawyers, they would stand up and uh, they were tasked with protecting the law. So they would see Jesus or hear Jesus teach. And they'd say, well, I've got a problem with something that you're saying. And so I'm going to ask a question. And so that's what happens on this particular occasion in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, this lawyer, he stands to his feet because what was common in those days was the reverse of what we do. Uh, The rabbi or the teacher would sit and the pupils, the learners would stand. I think we should probably switch that. Y'all want to switch that where y'all stand up and I get to sit down. Down, uh, for the next 45 minutes or so. That's basically what it was. And they would stand typically in honor of the position of the teacher, or the rabbi, but then also really probably at foundational level in, in honor of what was being taught. They had such a respect for the Torah as the as the word coming from the mouth of God that they would stand in honor of it. And so as the teacher would sit, they would stand. And so it was a typical kind of pedagogical uh, type of approach where there would be a, a back and forth where oftentimes questions would be asked. The rabbi would respond. Uh, and uh, in the middle of the sermon, you could ask a question and then he would He would begin to respond to you in that way. But this particular day was a little different uh, because when the lawyer stood up, he wasn't doing uh, what would normally be done just asking a question of the rabbi. He was asking a question to test Jesus. Uh, You might take this as kind of a, a test or you might really call it a trap. Because Jesus had been teaching some things and he wanted to put him to the test publicly, which was frequently what happened with Jesus. They would put him to the task. And they ask him in this particular instance, the the lawyer asked him, he says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so he's pretty much concerned with himself, but he's asking a basic fundamental theological question. And it's an interesting question on a lot of levels because if you're, a, if you're a Jewish lawyer, if you're a scribe, then you know how you possess eternal life. You possess eternal life through God's covenantal relationship with you, uh, the the whole history of Israel is a series of God's covenants with His people. There's kind of this misnomer that people think that Jews, um, people of the law, were trying to uh, really earn God's favor, do these things to earn God's favor, and that's how you get eternal life. But that's not the way a typical Jew would have really approached God. They would have approached God from a covenant relationship. That what God did is He began to. He was the instigator of the relationship. He began the relationship. And so what God called us to do through his law was to reciprocate that relationship with him and to walk in a manner of life that reflected the nature of that love relationship that God had covenanted with his people. And so the question is an interesting question because as a lawyer, he should have known the answer. The answer would have been the way that you enter into eternal life is because God institutes a covenant with you. And then you keep Torah as a reflection of that of that life and the Torah as you kept it would have led to a life of blessing and fullness and fruitfulness and so this was a typical approach from a Jewish mindset but on this particular day this particular lawyer stands up and he poses this question to Jesus in order to try to test him in order to try to trap him to see what Jesus would say it's a pretty important question And so Jesus, being Jesus, he did what he frequently did. He took the question and he didn't just immediately answer it. He did what he always did, is he asked a responsive question. The question he responds with is this, What is written in the law? He replied, How do you read it? So basically he puts it back in his lap. He says, Well, you know, you're asking me, let me ask you. How do you read the law? And this would have put him on the spot. I mean, there would have been a spotlight on this uh, lawyer at this point. Because he was like, okay, you've spent your life memorizing Torah. You are the one that everyone comes to when they've got a a, a tough decision to make to interpret Torah. And now, so I'm going to ask you, I'm going to flip the script on you. And I'm going to act like you are in the position of authority. Well, what's your interpretation of the scripture? And there was a lot of interpretations. Matter of fact, there were different rabbinical schools that had different trains of thought. And much like we do in denominations today, they would split off into different rabbinical schools that would have different takes on what the law said, how to rightly apply it And that makes a lot of sense if you start to read the Old Testament. Anybody read the first five books of the Bible and gotten a little confused on how to apply all that kind of stuff? Well, you're not alone. The Jewish people were oftentimes confused too. And so wanting to honor God in that reciprocal relationship, they needed authority. And in order to have authority, they had to interpret. And so Jesus asks the lawyer an interpretive question. How do you read it? Well, the response is, on the surface level, seems pretty logical. Here's the response from the lawyer. This is what he says. He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So in the moment, the lawyer responds to something that if you've been to church probably in 2021, there's, uh, you've probably come across this passage at some point. Uh, and not only is it probably familiar to many of you in here, it was very familiar to everyone in the room. This was something that they actually was woven into uh, their whole faith system. This, this answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, was actually taken to something that was called the Shema. The Shema was the first... Uh, Scripture that a Jewish child would learn at birth. It'd be the first thing, like if we would say to our kids, uh, you know, memorize your ABCs. Well, they would have memorized a thing called the Shema. Uh, It would actually become, for them as a matter of faith, the first prayer that they would pray in the morning, and it would become the last prayer they pray when they went to bed. So it would be the morning prayer and the bedtime prayer, okay? Uh, This would be the thing when they got together, they would often pray recite this matter of fact you can find it uh in deuteronomy chapter 6 and this was where this guy got it it's the same place that we get it from deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 9 says this hear O israel the lord our god the lord is one love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength these commandments that i give you today are to be on your heart's Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you, it goes on to say, sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. That's a pretty uh, descriptive way to approach this passage of Scripture, right? Uh, this was integral to their understanding of who they were. This was the ground. This was the foundation. This was the air they breathed. A matter of fact, uh, uh, you know, Jewish parents teaching, impressing it upon their children, they would talk about this and begin to explicate it and apply it as they went along the road and did all those kind of things. They would talk about it to their children when they were putting them into bed. Uh, at night and then they would actually would tell them to put it on their foreheads and write it on their arms. Uh, matter of fact, if you look at Orthodox Jews, if you Google that today uh, you're probably going to see pictures that just pop up under images that are going to have uh, Jewish men with uh, boxes that are tied to their forehead and leather straps that are wrapped around their arm. Uh, they take that from this uh, because they take this very literally oftentimes and very descriptively because this is what it means to be a Jew. That we have one God, Yahweh, covenant God with us. And so our reciprocating love for Him uh, inclines us to say that we are to love Him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And so this would have been something that would have been normal. Every day, every day recited, prayed, memorized, written on your arm, on your head, you write it on your doorpost, on your gates. This would have been Everywhere, This is what it meant to be formed as a Jewish individual. This was the bedrock of their faith. And so what the answer that comes on the outset from the expert of law uh, on many levels makes a ton of sense. It would have made a ton of sense to them. But what the lawyer actually does is he tags something on the end of it. Did you notice that? He tags something to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, interestingly, what we have in Scripture in the New Testament is we have Jesus introducing a concept to the Shema. And you see it in two different places, in Matthew chapter 22 and in Mark chapter 12. Uh, See if this sounds familiar to you. I'll show you the Mark reference in Mark chapter 12. Uh, This was another instance where a teacher of the law came to Jesus and they were debating. And they noticed that Jesus had given this good answer. And he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he goes on to say in verse 30, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Sounds exactly the same. And then Jesus says the second Second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these." Now, uh, we've been reading as a leadership team a book called Jesus Creed. And Jesus Creed is actually a, written by a guy named Scott McKnight. And he brings to light something profound that Jesus does in Matthew 22 and Mark chapter 12 that has everything to do with the understanding and the question that the, uh, the lawyer asked Jesus that day. Because what Jesus does is he takes the Shema that everyone memorized and everyone knew and everyone recited and everyone put it on their doorpost. And then he changes it. Now, it's hard to really communicate the significance of how startling this would have been that Jesus did. Uh, The closest thing that I can think of is maybe like the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, I grew up uh, in school uh, where we would stand in the morning and we would recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And there would always be somebody, a student that got the privilege of being the one in the office that would uh, uh, speak the Pledge of Allegiance uh, over the intercom. Do they still do that? Did, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, and it was always a big deal if you were the student that got to go to the office to you know push the button and do the do the thing and recite it. But imagine you're back in school and you're reciting it, and you're the one that's in the office on the intercom leading the whole school uh, in the Pledge of Allegiance. And you get to the end of the Pledge of Allegiance, and everybody finishes, and you keep going. And you just add a whole new section to the Pledge of Allegiance. Now probably there's a good chance everybody would look confused. There would probably be a lot of people that would actually be offended with that because you don't mess with the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, we say that like this is, it's a finished work. This is the Pledge of Allegiance. You don't get to add to the Pledge of Allegiance. And you probably, if you're one of those students that did that, they probably say, well, you're not doing it again. (laughs) You're not getting a chance to come back to the office and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Why? Because you got it wrong. That's not the Pledge of Allegiance. And so when Jesus does what he does in Mark chapter 12 and what he does in Matthew chapter 22 and what's reflected in the question and the response that the lawyer gives is Jesus actually changes the creed of the Jewish people. He takes what they believed and what they had recited for centuries and he inserts a second part of it. And then in doing so, he's reshaping the understanding and he's making an authoritative decision on the interpretation of what the Torah was really all about. He was the one to end all arguments about the conjecture and the opinion about uh, what's your take on this. Now, the question is, where does Jesus get this? Did he just make this up? This lawyer's response, did he just make this up? Well, no, actually, it's in another part of the Old Testament. It's in that that chapter that you always get messed up on when you're doing the Bible reading plan, the the book of Leviticus. I don't know, maybe most of y'all were doing that this morning in devotional, Uh, but most of us get off the rails. But Leviticus 19 says this, do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. And so what Jesus did is he took Leviticus 19 verse 18. They didn't have those designations. That's for us so we can map our way around it. He took that phrase. He attached it to Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 through 9. And in doing so, he gave us a new template a final authoritative template to understand the mind of God. He reinserted the central plot line, if you will all the confusion and all the complexity of all the question, hey, what are all these, there's over 600 and something commandments in here. How do we make sense of all this? You may ask the question, how do we make sense of all these things with faith, all these different opinions on all this minutia and, and all these intramural fights about this or that, or this is your take and that uh, that take that form different camps within churches and different camps within Christianity and within faith and within the world. Jesus says, let me authoritatively put it to rest. I'm going to answer for you what it is. I'm going to take Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to take Leviticus 19. I'm going to put it together. And I'm going to show you this is the central plot line of Yahweh, of God. And Jesus being God in the flesh is is simply the one who gets to make the call on what is the authoritative interpretation. And so he steps into the question and he says this. This is his response. This is Jesus' response to the lawyer. He says, you've answered correctly. He replies, do this and you will live. Remember the question. The question was, how do I inter- uh, inherit eternal life? Life f- for them was not, they didn't think of eternal life in the same manner that we think of eternal life. We think about punching a ticket and going to heaven when we die. Uh, that was not the way that they thought about it. They, uh, the way they viewed resurrection was that God was definitely going to come back. And he was going to res- there was going to be a final resurrection. Uh, and in doing so, then he was going to uh, basically fix all these things that were going to be broken. He was going to bring it back into restoration, right? And so this was the thought process. How do you then live? And so what Jesus was introducing to them was something that we know to be true now looking at Jesus. Jesus was saying, hey, through me, all right, the covenant of God in the beginning... Has been, has been brought to fruition. And so with that beginning, now it shapes who we become. That what we're going to become is a people that love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he attaches to it the bookend of we have to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so it seems like that would have been the end of the debate, end of the question. Hey, we had this little interchange. Lawyer tries to trick Jesus. Jesus throws a question back on him. He answers it, and we're not sure whether or not the lawyer actually heard Jesus teach this before, or if he was just from one of the rabbinical schools, that that was kind of their take on uh, on that, because some of them would have the take of uh, uh, what it said earlier in Luke chapter 19, that be holy as I'm holy, and all these different things. There's a lot of different takes on that. But what we do know is that whether he heard Jesus say this before, or he was of the particular rabbinical school, that Jesus says, hey, you got it right. It should have been the end of the conversation. Conversation, But it's not the end of the conversation. And the reason it's not the end of the conversation is because the lawyer has another question. In Luke chapter 10, verse 29, he asked a second question. He says, but he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, well, and who is my neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. He asked the question, who is my neighbor? Now, he's motivated by what motivates all of us but I think it was probably ter- the heat was turned up on him, right? Because he's supposed to be the authority. He had this dialogue. He thought he was going to trick Jesus. Jesus throws it back on him. Uh, it doesn't play, play out the way that he thought it would. And so he kind of he presses on it a little farther and he wants to prove himself, right? He wants to show inside this audience, he stood up, he tested Jesus. He wants everybody to look at him and think, well, he's, yeah, th- this guy is an authority. And so he wants to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, another probing question, well, who is my neighbor? And this would have been a logical question. If we're supposed to love our neighbor, like, don't you think, well, that's just a logical question. Well, who are you talking about? But the question itself actually, if you think about it in its totality, it's actually asking another question. It's actually asking a question, well, who is not my neighbor? It's actually asking the question, who do I have to love and who do I have permission not to love? Now, the, the most normal answer to this would have been found in Luke nineteen eighteen that we just read. I didn't highlight it the first time around, but I'll, I'll bold it here so you can see it. If you look at Luke, uh, Leviticus, excuse me, Leviticus nineteen eighteen, you see, Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Your people. Now, this is a typical response. Now, if you're a Jew, obviously, this means that you love other Jews. You love your family. You love your nation. Uh, you are dedicated communally. Their identity was not an individual identity; it was a corporate or communal identity. Uh, they made their decisions based on how it affected the whole, not how it just affected them. Uh, that's why you got into things like uh, arranged marriages and transfer of wealth to the oldest uh, uh, to the oldest uh, son uh, within the family because you tried to amass wealth over time for the sake of the family and the protection of the family. You did the same thing with uh, the nation itself of Israel. What was the success or failure of a nation? Well, you made your decision on what actually, how your decisions affected the whole, not just how it affected you. And so in, in seeing that, you say, well, okay, well, that makes perfect sense that if I'm gonna love my neighbor, I'm going to love my people. And this is the normal response of all of us. This is kind of the easy response. This is uh, liking people that are like us. Uh, It's a little bit more complicated today though, isn't it? I, I think it is because I think the groups have become a little bit more cloudy who we would say is our people is not just dictated by our, uh, our, our family anymore or maybe even where we live anymore, uh, whether it even be locally or nationally. But now it seems like we can find our people through the advent of uh, uh, technology and uh, advances on the internet and social media. We can find our people, even people that think like us, that don't live anywhere near us. We can create all new people groups. Uh, online with people that are far away, and they can begin to influence the people that were immediately around. I mean, this this is the the weirdness of the time in which we live in. I don't think they could have ever conceived of this, uh, the way that we live in 2021. But what is true, whether or not it's the people that you are immediately around or someone that you've connected with online because you like the same music, or you like the same style, or you're interested in the same games, or whatever uh, you're interested in, here's the truth that's universal to us. Most of us, we say when we think of neighbor, we think of our people. The people that think the way we do, believe the way we do, and want the same things we want. Same perspective. But what makes it more difficult is if you read the law for a Jew, it becomes very convoluted. Well, immediately out of the gate, if you just read down through Leviticus in chapter 19, you get a curveball thrown to you. And one of the curves that's thrown to you is in verse 33. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as a native born, as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So what is he saying? He's saying, okay, well, it's natural for you to affiliate with your people and love your people. But when you're loving your neighbor, uh, there's already some things that God has put into place to say, well, your neighbor is not exactly the people you think it is. It's actually the immigrant or the refugee that comes into your presence. Then you are, uh, in order to respond to the reciprocal covenant relationship with God, the one that brought you out of captivity and you were a refugee. Now, what, what are you expected to do? You're expected to treat this person that's not like you, that would naturally be designated as your people, as your people. Treat them like they're native born. And this is what uh, this is why these got really, com- really complicated and complex for them to try to parse out, and why they needed people like lawyers to go to and say, "Hey, what are we supposed to do? How do we rightly apply these types of things?" And so he begins to already kind of, he already takes us down the path of kind of this confusion motif. But what Jesus is about to do is he's about to even take what Leviticus 19 verses 33 and 34 say, and he's about to actually confound it a little bit more. He's about to actually take it, and he's going he's to actually become very confrontational uh, through this parable. And then he's going to actually resolve, resolve it with an unexpected end to answer the question, who is my neighbor. And the way he does that is through this famous story called the Good Samaritan. Uh, it, it starts out in this portion in verse 30. In reply, Jesus says this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was uh, attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half." Dead. this is a famous story uh, it's been commandeered by political uh, groups and social groups and so you don't even have to be a church person to probably have heard the Good Samaritan uh, story at one point it begins simply with a picture of a guy that was leaving Jerusalem going to Jericho one day uh, and he's making the uh, he, he's regressing down the hill uh, Jerusalem's about 2500 feet above sea level uh, Jericho is about 800 feet below sea, sea level going toward the Dead Sea and so as they're coming if you you're coming down the hill hill, there's a lot of outcroppings of rocks and stuff like that, and bandits and thieves would hide out in these places. And so it was a treacherous road. And so when uh, Jesus uses this story, everybody in the audience would have said, oh yeah, I've been down that road. I know someone's been down that road. The story itself probably would have become very real and personal because most, uh, probably most people would have known of a story or known of someone that had 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 a bad trip down this road at some point. And so this is, uh, Jesus is stepping into their world. He's giving them something very realistic that they can uh, think of. It'd be much like a, us uh, in modern day saying for us in Jonesboro, hey, uh, imagine you were driving from here, uh, to West Memphis and your car broke down and you got someone pulled over and someone robbed you or something like that. Uh, he's giving them this story that they can all feel, they can all experience. And this particular road was a treacherous road uh, and everyone knew that it was dangerous. And so they would have probably all gasped. They probably all would have felt something at this point saying, oh man, uh, they probably would have personified that. I knew somebody that went through that. They probably would have had images of that. And so Jesus takes that image and that feeling that they have And then he takes the story one step further. And this is how he does it. He says in verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So we get introduced to two characters right out of the gate. The first one is a priest. The priest, obviously, was the one that was responsible in the temple uh, of being the one that was uh, over the temple. All right? They were the ones that would uh, take care of the sacrifices and the daily operation of the temple. They were in charge of that. This had been instituted way back in the Old Testament with the prophet uh, I mean excuse me with a guy named Aaron that came out with Moses, Moses' brother, uh, and uh, this whole tribe lineage would have come back, uh, come down. And so you were born into this role on behalf of the people. This was your role uh, is to operate uh, as the, in the mediator between God and man on behalf of the people. And so obviously this is a very well-respected uh, individual, this, this person, this priest. Uh, and so we're introduced to this priest. He's probably been at the temple and the way that it would typically roll uh, as history tells us is that they would work uh, a couple of weeks on shift uh, in the temple and live there And then most of the priests would actually live in Jericho and make the trek back and forth. And so he's probably coming down from his time at the temple. He's coming back home uh, to Jericho to spend time with his family. Uh, He's rotating shifts. And so there's another priest that's going up the hill to do uh, the job in his stead. And then they would do this back and forth. So he's coming down the hill. Right, he he sees this guy that is over uh, on uh, over on the side, uh, and he's been stripped of his possessions, and he's been stripped of his dignity. He's naked, and he's empty. He doesn't have anything left. And Scripture tells us that he is half dead. And behind him, this Levite comes, and the Levite would have been the uh, assistant in the temple. He would kind of take care of the the outer courts. and uh, they, they had a responsibility as well, but they weren't the same as the priest. And so he would have been following behind. And so you would have expected them to say, okay, well, priest, okay, well, Levite, I, I know who all these, te- these people are. They probably actually would have, again, uh, had a picture in mind of somebody that was a priest or a Levite. All right. They, this was a very personal thing. It'd be like you saying to a pastor, uh, you might've like em- envisioned me, right? Because you know me. Uh, if you've been here, it's like, well, uh, pastor, there's a word association there. I'm thinking of Dan. You would have seen a, probably a picture of somebody in your face of going down there. It wouldn't have been an archaic uh, kind of illustration. So he comes by, the priest goes on the other side, the other guy's are on the other side. And so the question on the outset is like, okay, why would these guys do that? Like if you saw somebody bloody on the side of the road, why would you do that? And there's a couple of different opinions or a few different opinions on why that is. Probably the one that you've heard of most uh, had to do with uh, uh, defiling themselves. It was, a, it was a question of purity. Uh, they didn't want to defile themselves. There's a passage in Numbers chapter uh, 19 that actually would, would lead you to believe that. Uh, that this was what they were worried about. Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then they will be clean. But if they do not purify themselves on the third day and on the seventh day, they will not be clean. And it goes on to say some other things, like if they fail to purify themselves after touching a human corpse, they defile the Lord's tabernacle. They must be cut off from Israel because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them. They are unclean. Their uncleanness remains on them." Now, if, if you were basing it off of this, you would probably say, okay, well, it makes sense. Uh, it makes sense for them. They've been up at temple. Uh, they're coming back. If they have to do this, then they're, they're not going to be able to spend time with their family. I mean, you're tired. You know what it's like when you get off work and you want to go home, and it's like, oh, goodness gracious, I've got to then, uh, if I do this, and if he's dead, then, I, I mean, I've defied myself. I've got to go through all this ceremony and stuff like that. I'm just, I need to get home. And so part of it's a theological, if you take this approach, part of it's a theological thing. And the other thing is just a really practical human thing. You know, like, I'm just tired. Like, I, I just, I just got to get home. And, and that would make sense. I mean, there was, often, there was often times these other thoughts that even like if you got close enough and uh, your shadow was cast over uh, the dead body, that you would then become defiled so you didn't even have to touch it. And uh, they didn't know if he was dead or not. He was half dead. Or if he dies on the way, what do you do? And so there's all these questions. It gets really complex, right? Really complex. And and some people think that that's why. Um, There's probably some evidence that that might not be. The reason why, because actually Jews were uh, tasked with taking care. They had a lot of reverence for dead bodies. Okay. That sounds kind of morbid, but they, they honored the people there uh, and a lot more than maybe even in our context today, they, there was a lot of honor that went into, uh, when someone passed away, there was this long projected way that they would mourn and take care of the body and all that kind of stuff. And so there's actually, uh, evidence that maybe that's not the reason, maybe it wasn't purity. There's actually, a, a Um, a writing from the Talmud, which is a a Jewish authoritative work that says this, that as long as there are no other people to look after the burial of a corpse, the duty is incumbent on the first Jew that passes by without exception to perform the burial. Um, This is why, like if you remember 9-11, that there were Jews that kept vigil uh, at ground zero until all the bodies had been recovered because they would say that everyone needs to be taken care of. This, this is kind of a Jewish mindset as well. And so it's a little puzzling because either it's a theological or practical question or there's something else going on here. There's something else that would cause them to not do that. Now, we all know that there's theological complexities. We know there's practical reasons why. But I think perhaps, um, there's a famous uh, sermon by Martin Luther King, Jr. that he gave before he came to Memphis to help the sanitation workers right before he was assassinated about, uh, this, uh, about this particular passage, the story of the Good Samaritan. And he, he thought something completely different as a motivation. This is what he thought. He thought it had to do with fear. This is how he, this is how he termed it. He says, I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible these men were afraid. And so the first question that the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? If I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? I think if you take that route, Whether or not it's the theological route, the practical route, I think we can all resonate with all those. I think we can all connect with this fear. I mean, it's what's gonna happen to me. You see something that's that's scary, right? Someone's hurt. You're going home to be with your family. What's going to happen to me? And I think that probably touches on what was in the mind of the lawyer. Because what was his question? How do I inherit eternal life? It was a me question. He was asking, how do I inherit eternal life? And so I think all of these touch on that. But I do think that there was probably fear. I think there was confusion theologically. I think there were just practical applications because this is what it means to live life and to try to apply faith to life. What is the central storyline? What is the plot of this thing? What have you called us to be? What have you called us to do in reciprocation, God, of your love to the people around us? And to answer that question, Jesus does a very unconventional thing. He takes something that would have been commonly known in a parable called the Law of Threes, which would have said, okay, well, you've got two illustrations. You've got a priest. You've got a Levite. The natural thought would be the third one would kind of be the hero. It's kind of that rising action. That's going to be the person we're looking at that's going to get it right. And so he takes that. They're all expecting this because they know how parables work like this. And so they're leaning in to listen well, and they're thinking that probably what going to mention now, if he said priest, Levi, then the natural personnel is just a normal normal Jew. Uh, uh, The next person is just the average Jew. This is just uh, like me and you. We're just going to come and he's going to come down the hill. But, But what Jesus does is he takes their expectation and he confronts their understanding. And this is how he does it. He says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Same progression. They're leaning in. And what, is, what do they hear? They hear a Samaritan. Now, that doesn't mean that much to us. Um, but this was a group that had huge animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans that was dating back hundreds of years, all the way to the seventh uh, century B.C., it happened when the Assyrians came in and they, there was a divided kingdom among the Jews and 10 tribes, uh, they got taken off uh, into captivity and the Assyrians dropped in uh, a lot of their own people and they were trying to be intermarrying and they started to take on their gods and they started to change their understanding of what uh, the Torah was. And they even started, had their own uh, city, uh, their own uh, temple, their own mountain. And you can see some of that stuff if you wanna study it yourself. There was just a whole lot of religious differences Uh, They had different opinions on everything. Uh, and then that animosity grew because in the 5th century B.C., as the uh, northern kingdom fell at that point, the Babylonians came in and carted them off. There was a group that resolutely held on. This is kind of like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and those those characters. And they were holding on uh, to the truth of God. And so there was kind of this, uh, when they when they all got sent back under Persian rule, back in Nehemiah and Ezra, they were in that section. When they all come back and they read Gather, then there was a whole lot of strife between these two groups because some seemed to be uh, true to the Torah. Uh, others seemed to say, well, we're not, we're not alike. And they begin to war and undermine one another. And so there was probably no group that you could have mentioned that would have called more consternation between the Jews and than saying a Samaritan. And if you're the lawyer that's standing up asking this question, you would have been particularly heated at this moment because your job was to protect your understanding and interpretation of the law. And so the last person that you would have expected to be the hero of the story would have been the person that you would have constituted as your enemy. And what he's saying here is what Jesus is doing is he's answering the question, who is my neighbor, by instilling and, and initiating someone that they would never have expected. And he points to some commonalities, okay? He says that it all begins, if you want to look at the Samaritan and what he did, it all begins with his awareness. Now, just follow the progression with me for a second. If you just review the story, uh, you have the thieves first, and what did they see with the man? They saw a victim to exploit. This is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago when people use their position uh, to take advantage and use other people, and so they would advance themselves. And so you have thieves. This is what the definition of a thief uh, is. is someone that takes from someone else uh, at their expense to help themselves. Uh, they, become, they exploit the situation, they exploit people. And so the thieves, that was what they were aware of when they saw the, the victim. The uh, priest and the Levite, what did they see? They saw whether it was theological, practical, or it was just blame fear. They saw a problem to avoid. It was an inconvenience, or at, at the least, uh, it was a really significant problem uh, at the most. But the Samaritan saw a different thing when he saw the same situation. He saw a person to be loved. He saw a person to be loved. Now, There's a lot of different opinions about love, what that is. Uh, I'm of the opinion that love is both a feeling and an action. People like to say today that uh, love is not a feeling. Well, uh, let me ask you this. Do you have feelings for your spouse or your kids? Yeah, of course you do. Love is a feeling. God loves us. I believe God is a relational God. He feels love for us. He doesn't just act lovingly to us honestly, that when we feel love, we act in love. And so what's a good definition of love? Well, I mentioned that books Jesus Creed, earlier. Scott McKnight defines love this way. I think it's pretty good. Love is a rugged, effective commitment to be present with another person in a way that communicates advocacy. It's a rugged, effective commitment with another person in a way that communicates advocacy, rugged commitment. I mean, parents, think about carrying that uh, car seat around in those early years with the baby, the the sleepless nights, you know, uh, all the things that having a baby means and the kid grows up and and what it means when they become a teenager as you sacrifice uh, many of your wants for their needs and uh, send them off to college or to get a job and all those things that that entails. I, I, I mean, that is a rugged commitment. It calls you to do something. And that rugged commitment is a lot about presence. It means that when you love your kids, for example, that you you are with them, You're, you're, you're there. But you're not just there because you like hanging out. You're there because you're an advocate for your kids. You want them to become whole. You want them to become healthy, to fully alive. You want them to experience life. You have their best interest at heart. See, love is a rugged, effective commitment to represent, to be present with someone, to actually be present with someone in a way that communicates advocacy, that you're there for their well-being. And the reason for that is, is that when we think about the Samaritan, what was so powerful about that? was this Samaritan was showing this rugged commitment. He was present and he was communicating. He became an advocate, didn't he, in the situation. And it was so unexpected because oftentimes what we do is we look at certain groups of people and we say, no, not them. There's no way that God could use them. There's no way they could get it right. They can't do good stuff. We're the ones that get it right. We've got everything right. And Jesus confronts that thinking. And he inserts a Samaritan, and he says, listen, he has a different approach to the same situation. Where you failed, he succeeded. And here's why he succeeded, because he took action. He didn't just have awareness, because advocacy is about action. And why is that? Because awareness without action leads to apathy. I don't think that the priest and the Levite hated the man on the side of the road. I don't think that at all. I think they were apathetic. I think that they looked at that and said, it's just inconvenient. And so what we have here is we, we may say today, well, well we don't, I don't hate them. Well, the passage is not about hating people, really, at this level, uh, at this point in the story. It will be at the end. But at this point in the story, it's simply about saying that when we take action, we are diffusing apathy. Because sometimes, let's just be honest, we think the fact that we're aware of problems, means we've done something. I mean, the fact that we post something on social media about something, it feels like we've really done something, let's be honest. Well, It's really easy to post an opinion about something. It's a lot different to actually get your hands dirty and actually help someone. We're so busy oftentimes trying to find out whose fault it is and blaming whose problem it is that we don't get our hands dirty to try to help anyone. And oftentimes the church is the worst ones about that. We like to share our opinions about whose fault it is rather than say, what can we do to actually take action to help? And that's what Jesus is getting at. That's what he models in the Samaritan. And so what did he do? What was the action he took? Well, you see it with the verbs in the passage. He went to him and he bandages his wounds, pouring out oil and wine Uh, Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look uh, look after after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Now, interestingly, right? Uh, what does he do? He, he puts the guy, he takes out his stuff, he puts him on his donkey. But just imagine for a second, like you, imagine going into Jericho to the inn and you're a Samaritan and you've got a bloody naked Jew on the back of your donkey. I mean, what do you think everyone thought? It wasn't just, hey, I'm, it's costing me some time. It's saying, this is putting himself in danger. Can you see him coming in and saying, oh, no, 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 let me explain, let me explain, let me explain. And they're like, oh, no, we're not giving you time to explain. Because oftentimes with people that we hate, with people that we think are the enemies, we don't want to listen to them because we cannot fathom that they would do something good. So he put himself at risk, didn't he? And so he, you see what he did, the action. And so Jesus takes the story, and this is the, po- the question he responds back to the lawyer with, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Do you see what he did? The question was, Who is my neighbor? Jesus changed the question and he says, It's not about who your neighbor is, it's whether or not you're going to be a neighbor. Jesus was so smart. I mean, so smart that you almost miss what he said. Because here's the punchline of the whole thing. The enemy became the neighbor. You see, Christian faith is completely different in this aspect. Is it calls us not just to love our friends, but it calls us to love those that we would call our enemies. It's much like saying the good Samaritan. You may say, well, the good Hamas member. You may say, depending on which party you're a part of, the good Republican or the good Democrat. That's probably good in 2020 application today from all the dissension, right? Uh, it might be someone of a different, uh, a different faith system. It might be a different nationality for you. Someone that in your mind would not be the normal application. Somebody that it's hard for you to love. The enemy became the neighbor in Jesus' story. And he did that because he implemented three things. He took compassion, he took his capacity, and he added action to it, and it equaled mercy. Compassion, he had love. He took capacity, capacity is taking what you have. You know, God doesn't ask you to use what you don't have. He's not asking you sometime in the future to use what you will have. He's saying, what do you have? What time do you have? What resources do you have? But well, where has he placed you? That's your capacity. And then he, you add to that taking action in a very simple way. is in your path, he calls that mercy. See, mercy is different than compassion. Compassion says my heart breaks for that. Mercy says I'm willing to become broke for that. And that's how the whole story ends. The expert replies to him this way, the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even bear to say Samaritan. He said, the one who had mercy. And what did Jesus simply tell him to do? He said, go and do likewise. And that was the end of the story. And so what does that mean for us? I think it means for us that what God wants us to do is he wants us to recapture the central plot, to push past the complexity, to push past the differences, and to get to the center of what God believes is the center. And in order to do that, I'd like for us to recite that Mark 12 passage, what Scott McKnight calls the Jesus Creed together. Let's recite this together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. As we've been praying together as individuals, what I want to end together with today is I want us to pray that into action. And so we're going to put three prayer prompts up here for you. I'm going to give you just a few minutes to pray these things. Basically, we're praying that God will give us a heart of love for him and a heart of love for others. They help us to recognize people around us in our path. We're all going to go on different paths that he'll help us to see them with the awareness and that God would give us the courage and the humility to respond and take action. And so would you pray to God right now and engage with this on a very personal level and on a corporate level as well as we finish our time together?